This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Three years we spent behind those walls trying to break out. And now you want us to break back in. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. Uh, I would say I'm, you know, fresh off of spring break and feeling rested and relaxed, but it was ended with a wedding and now two days of the semester and I'm going back to 8 a.m. waking up and I'm, <laughs> I'm exhausted. Like weddings or a full semester? Which is more exhausting? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Could go either way. So um, we are about to wrap up the Maze Runner series. Uh, I know the, the original plan that I announced last week was that we would be putting out uh, the two mini-sodes on the first two films, you know, uh, within a couple days of each other. But then we had a bunch of scheduling issues. A guest dropped out. And then we tried to reschedule this recording and weren't able to. So we basically will just have to put those two episodes out uh, in their consecutive weeks. And then uh, this one will come out. And you're listening to it now. All that just going to say, whenever I give you a schedule, just don't pay any attention to it. <laughs> so this week we are talking about the final film, The Maze Runner, The Death Cure. Uh, this is a film that we, I've been waiting a long time to talk about, a couple of years longer than I should have. But before we get to that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to head over to iTunes and just leave us a, a rating and review and subscribe as well. Uh, that would really help us and we would really appreciate that. And also... Uh, uh, like go over to Facebook and like us there as uh, at our franchise Fatigue podcast, and you could keep up to date with uh, you know, all the upcoming episodes, as well as uh, you know give feedback that can be read out on the show. And uh, moving into the main discussion of the film, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film came to the big screen? Sure. So there's very little for me to to say about a lot of this. I feel like most of the stories are are in this film's production. Um, obviously, it's it's based on the third book of the original Maze Runner trilogy uh, on the same name. Um, the book was published on October 11th of 2011, so roughly a year after The Scorch Trials was released, um, and it received like mixed to positive acclaim. Um, I think the the built-in fan base was received it pretty well. Director Wes Ball was being asked questions about the third installment as far back as interviews taking place in 2014. Uh, Ball stated that were he to return, uh, he would not go the way of uh, the typical YA adapt, uh, adaptation of the time of doing a two-parter, um, and that was later confirmed after he was uh, officially hired to direct the the third film. At this point, you had like Harry Potter, Twilight, The Hunger Games, and the Divergent series all went that route. <laughs> Although the Divergent series tried to split their final book and didn't even, didn't even like, get the last film made. Ooh, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's that's yeah. weird. So in in 2015, T.S. Nolan, who had uh, co-written the first film and written the second one, uh, was announced to return as writer, uh, and that is when Wes Ball uh, was announced as returning director. As far as casting goes, this is pretty much the same cast from the previous film, with the new addition of Walton uh, Walton Goggins, who is always welcome, in my opinion. I'm I love this guy. He needs to get like a lot more recognition because he makes the most out of his roles. And the interesting thing about that is that he was not announced uh, as cast until like in 2017 when they had like restarted production after the injury and all that. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether that role was either recast or maybe even 
like created during that that break in filming because he was he was not part of the original cast when they started shooting back the year before. Yeah, and that that's what's so weird is you know we you don't see those recast articles. I mean, even now, having been you know a, a year removed from the release, and it wouldn't surprise me if the character because of how little he's in it, if if it was like, well, let's reevaluate the script and see if we want anything new. And I guess just another bit of uh, casting information, author of the trilogy, James Dashner, uh, appears as one of the guys in the armchairs whenever Teresa is giving her her speech about the plan and everything. So they gave themselves a bit more time with this one. Instead of uh, trying to get it out in exactly a year like they had with the Scorch Trials, they gave themselves five more months and slated it to release on September 7, on, on February 17th, 2017. Principal photography began on March 14th of 2016 in Vancouver, but on the 18th, just four days into shooting, there was an accident on set uh, while filming the opening train heist. Uh, Dylan O'Brien was pretty severely injured and the production was halted. Initially, they planned to restart production two months later in May, but in April, they shut down the entire production indefinitely due to his injuries being far more uh, severe than anticipated. So as far as the actual details of the accident, uh, you know, O'Brien and the entire production has been very quiet. Um, I don't know if that's for like legal reasons or kind of a personal choice of his. Um, yeah, you can find details online if you dig, but uh, just you know, as far as this podcast, we're just gonna kind of stick to the what what is public knowledge. You know, we do know that the accident was uh, happened while he was filming the shot of him climbing out of the truck and onto the hood uh, you know, as they were on the tracks in the opening scene. It was actually being shot in a parking lot. Uh, the background was digitally added. Uh, according to West Ball, the vehicles were moving at around like 10 miles an hour. And whatever happened, there was a, you know very massive injuries that apparently broke his face or something very, very, very bad. And then along with that, even after he was healed, apparently he went through some like fairly massive trauma. And I'm guessing like something akin to PTSD or just, you know, PTSD. Um, supposedly for a while, he considered even quit quitting acting. It just really, really messed him up. Um, he had already signed on to be the lead in American Assassin, which was supposed to shoot shortly after the Death Cure wrapped. Um, with that also had to be pushed back as uh, as O'Brien was dealing with you know the personal issues and, and figuring out if he, if he even wanted to continue uh, in this career. Eventually, he d- did decide to keep going and did American Assassin. And there's a really kind of sweet story about how his dad, uh, Patrick O'Brien, who is a camera operator in Hollywood, he was able to come on to American Assassin and you know work as a camera operator just so he could be there to support his son uh, during that time. And then he was also able to come on for the filming of The Death Cure later on, and he's credited, credited as a co-producer on The Death Cure. I think it's just kind of a you know, heartwarming story that he was able to be there for his son uh, you know, during this very difficult time for him. When production finally did pick back up, it was in March of 2017, just two weeks shy of a full year after the accident. Filming was then moved from Vancouver to Cape Town, South Africa, where the entire film was then shot. And from what I hear, they actually either the take where the accident happened or one of the takes shot on the day when the accident happened is actually in the final film. Supposedly, uh, Dylan O'Brien kind of uh, insisted that it be used. I didn't break my face for no reason. Yeah. Something I didn't mention last time was that uh, Weta Digital handled the uh, VFX for the Scorch Trials, and also they came back for the Death Cure. Um, and John Paisano uh, once again returned to score the film. Uh, during pr- post-production, the release date got shuffled around a bit, the original release date being February 17, 2017. After production was shut down, it was moved to January 12, 2018. 
Then it was moved to February 12th to give another month for post-production. Then it was moved back up to uh, January 26th, where it was finally released uh, just over 11 months after the original release date. So it had a very uh, tortured production. And for a while there, you know, there was a full year before they started filming. And you were kind of wondering even if this film was even going to get made. So James, what were your thoughts on this film originally and have they changed since your first viewing? So um, when I first saw it, it was it was in the theater. This is the only one of the three that I'd seen in the theater. Rewatched, I think I said this before, I rewatched the first two leading up to it. Um, and I really enjoyed it uh, the first time I watched it. Um, I think what really surprised me was how cinematic it felt. You know, you kind of, even after enjoying the first two films... I guess it's just just the film culture just embeds this idea of these are YA films. They're not to be taken too seriously. But seeing it on the big screen, there were sequences that really just impressed me visually. Um, you know, the, the opening heist sequence with the train, uh, pretty much everything in the last city, like this very Blade Runner looking area. Um, there, there were just a lot of moments that felt big and grand in a way that I guess I didn't expect going in. And I really liked uh, the the way or the places it took the characters. Um, there were several decisions that I was kind of surprised they made, but I liked a lot. Um, and so I think by the end of it, I, it felt like a very satisfying conclusion that that gave me the action I wanted, the emotion I wanted. It just—it feels like it hit all the notes it set out to hit. Yeah, um, going into this film, I was—I was a little worried because I, I wasn't a huge fan of the book. For the most part, I, I had liked the changes that uh, that West Ball and T. S. Nolan had made in the first two films, like where where they seemed to be kind of moving some of the narrative away from some of the more weirder aspects of the book. And I think it, like a similar thing happens in the uh, the Maze Runner series. It happens with a lot of YA stories where, you know, they come out with the first book that has this really interesting concept, just kind of, you know, we have the Hunger Games or in Divergent, you have the society that's separated by uh, aptitude or this, or with the Maze Runner, you have this, these crazy, you know, kids in this huge, uh, you know, death, uh, deadly maze. And so, but then as the sequels come out and they have to start explaining why the world is like this and also trying to give an earth-shattering uh, resolution to the series, they just they just kind of get more and more ridiculous, you know, quite often. And they, they often lose sight of the, 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 the they lose sight of what made the story so compelling, kind of this often the simplicity of the stories that and the way they started, and they become you know very political, very just big and bloated and convoluted and i think that the the death cure is a, is a very good example of that as a book i think that uh west ball coming in there Nolan coming into this story realizes that and so like the, the the main things that the book is about are kind of just put to the side like the bigger things you know the the world the the, the more world building aspects are kind of just pushed to the side they're there they're acknowledged and they're used to help drive the plot but what they're really interested in this story is characters. It's about you know, it's about Thomas. It's about his journey. It's about him. You're know, trying to protect all his friends. You know, Newt's journey, Teresa's journey, Mino and Galli. It's about all these characters kind of coming together and you know, trying to, to save each other and stay safe in this dangerous world that is intent on using them and you know, using, manipulating, abusing them, and just you're trying to you know, save each other in this as the world is collapsing around them. Even you know, I, I I still don't think some of the plot, you know, some of the larger world building aspects make all, all that much sense. But it, I I don't think it matters all that much because 
this film invests us so deeply in these characters, these very likable human people, and with with these very simple, relatable needs and desires um, in every moment. Yeah, I, I think a lo- one of the big problems with these YA novels, and just probably a lot of fiction in general, is you know not every author takes, unfortunately, although I mean obviously it's too much to expect. But not, not everybody's able to take like the Tolkien approach where you, you fully create an entire world where you do flesh out the society and then you write your story. A lot of time you, you do you start with that idea and then you write the next one. You're like, wait, I put this. How do I address this? And so it almost feels like every subsequent book is having to answer questions from the last book and then that ends up asking its own questions and, and it forces the the author kind of to be reactionary to their own work um and i think that by i guess seeing that as as a problem or at least as something that just doesn't work on screen and by choosing to ground everything in the characters you're almost able to sidestep those problems in the film and and i think for myself it makes it a lot more enjoyable because you know the the moments that don't always work for me are like you know like the big reveal from the first one i'm like yeah this is really silly but we don't dwell on it too long, and and I thought Scorch Trials did it perfectly. Of like, okay, we've got all all of the ridiculousness is out open in the air. Let's just move on with these characters, and and to a large extent, that's what this one did as well. And as with the previous two films, we have to spend just a little bit of time, or a lot of bit of time, um, just praising West Ball's action direction, um, just from the the opening scene of this movie, and and I I like that you really see what his priorities are as a filmmaker or and, and a storyteller just from the open like they don't open with narration there's no text on the screen there's no like someone saying oh this is what the world is like and then this happened this happened in the previous films it's just he drops us into an action scene and just lets the care lets us discover the characters through action um and this this the train heist is just beautiful it's it, first off it's, it's just it's so fast it feels so fast as you have the, you know, the truck coming beside the train and trying to get out behind it and the tires are blowing and you know they're almost falling and just there's it, it feels like death is always just you know one mistake away <laughs> which is pretty apt in the case of what happened to uh, Dylan O'Brien um in real life but yeah and then what's crazy is that there was actually no movement in that scene it's, it was uh, you know the train was against the green screen and the truck coming up behind it was against was against the green screen. You just had guys behind it rocking the truck, and all of the speed of motion is conveyed through you know fans and wind, camera movement, and uh, and just the CGI background. And I, you would never know that watching the scene. It, it's so well integrated, and just the sense of speed is so well realized through camera moves that every time, even though I know exactly how it was shot, I you know on the edge of my seat and gripping my seat because there's. It's, it just feels it feels dangerous yeah it really is just a well shot sequence all around and like you said it's I you know I didn't know about the way it was shot beforehand you know especially just going into the theater the first time and it, it puts you on the edge of your seat the way he moves the camera and stuff in this very Mad Max like kind of sequence um, and one thing that I really like about the sequence is and this kind of goes hand in hand with what you're talking about of but just dropping us back into the world without any without taking any time to really ex- reacquaint ourselves with it is the way it introduces the characters uh, through the like through their moments in the plan 
Like whenever whenever we get to Newt's part, we stop, we look over at the rock, he shouts, and Newt comes out, and he does his thing, and he gets them. People. Like it's there's constant, and then, you know, and then we see Brenda and Jorge driving, and and they're given these introductions as if we the audience know and care about these characters, you know, which probably considering just the delays around death cure it's like i feel like by the time it came out the people who were there were the people who had been waiting yeah. and are excited for it to be out now and so we are the people who enjoy these characters and so to to not have like just really dumb dialogue of trying to force reintroductions and stuff especially considering how long we you know we went between the movies they just come in and they do their thing and and we're right back with the group dynamic um and so I think it just it does a good job of setting the tone and and the dynamic of the group again and everything just in an opening sequence. And then the second scene I think does a fantastic job of continuing that it, where that scene kind of is there to remind us. You have uh, Vince giving the speech to the new arrivals. You have Thomas and the others off to the side. They're sad they didn't get Minho, and then they all come together for the next plan. We get a lot of like I think world building dialogue, but it also it makes sense because it's it's based in the character motivations. Thomas wants to go after Minho. Vince is saying I've got all these kids here. That my, my job, you know, is to get these people to safety. I can't risk all these kids for this one guy. Then you have like uh, uh, Jorge and Brenda, who are kind of not you know they they don't know Minho, and you know they they like Thomas. They love Thomas, so they're they, and they they're they're kind of hesitant to get involved in yet another harebrained scheme. And so you. You have all the world building dialogue telling us who, where they are, what they want, but it's again entrenched in character. And I think that's when the dialogue in the film works best is whenever it's really focused on character. Uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of the speech that happens just before that scene. It sounds very much that that's where it almost does feel like a recap of. You are immune. They want that. <laughs> but I, They're coming here. But I love that he cuts away like mid-speech. That's kind of happening in the background as we're looking at Thomas being sad that Mino is not there. Yeah, yeah. So the, the scene itself isn't bad, but you know, I, just talking about the the dialogue there, I guess. But in the actual scene where they're coming up with the plan, yeah, everybody's bringing their own perspective to this plan. Like you said, you know, we don't know this guy. Well, I do, so I got to go do this. They're naturally going to come with him and do that. Like, it's just, you don't really have that moment of like, all right, you know, come on team, let's go and get it done. Um, it does pay respect to the fact that not everybody's in the same headspace right now. So I think we're going to kind of run through uh, a couple action scenes because the, the action has always been one of the big highlights in these series. Uh, after this, you go into the, uh, the tunnel sequence and... I, I kind of wish this was longer. I kind of missed just the the maze running sequences where you're a bunch of guys just running flat out in the dark, uh, you know, with monsters right on their heels. I kind I kind of I kind of missed that from the previous two films. Uh, I feel like they kind of they put this scene in there just to remind you guys that yeah, we were once the Maze Runner series, but now we've kind of <laughs> moved on. Um, but my favorite part of this is actually the reveal of the cranks like you know they're slowly going to the tunnel and they're all scared looking ahead and then when thomas just kind of leans back in his seat and the woman's face is right there in the glass and like it's like it's just, you know a jump scare without being you know a fake out and then like literally as each character turns and looks at camera there's just revealing another 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 cranks all around but i love how just like the cranks are just kind of there every time they turn and not, none of them come into the scene organically it's a really really creepy scene yeah this scene really like it almost gave me um like 28 days later vibes of just these really freaky bloodlust kind of kind of moving zombies it, 
it almost made me wish that uh, now that Fincher's out, if maybe Wes Ball wanted to take over World War Z too. That I would be very happy with. <laughs> the way he he shoots the zombies, just the way their movement, everything about it, it's really it's like it's really disturbing sometimes. And, and like he never goes like hard R with like blowing off their limbs or anything, but like the moments where they, like they they stop just short of somebody and we pull out the shotgun and shoot him point blank like the the whole scene feels dangerous um remember they they'd released part of the scene as like a not a featurette but just like a you know just a, a brief glimpse at the movie before it came out and i remember watching it and thinking it looked really cool but then even having seen it in the theater i was on the edge of my seat for the whole like the whole sequence and whenever the car flips over the way that that just like builds tension um naturally and it, it's not the whole like oh i can't open the the door for some reason i forgot how to use keys like the way he kind of realistically builds tension during that scene with the reveals and with things going wrong and then just the super cool um not introduction uh i guess just introduction of brenda and jorge into the scene I just love the way she just pops out of the pops out of the roof of the car in one motion, brings the pistol down, starts firing. It's he he's able to create all these awesome little moments without like you know as much as I love Zack Snyder, you know, he does he doesn't go into the, the crazy slow mo Zack Snyder thing or where he he, you know, he doesn't go out of his way to make it to call out to. It's just these beautiful little moments of action happening, and then he he cuts away as soon as they're over. Yeah, and they always feel like they're there's like a sense of movement to like forward movement throughout each of the cuts you know we talked about this you know on our, our scorch trials uh episode where they're running through the mall and you know you kick him down here and we follow over here it's just you kind of get that as well here where where we're looking at this and then this comes in a frame and then we look at that and then we move on and uh, really cool uh ways of building scenes and uh listening to interviews with west ball uh one one interesting thing I noticed is how, how he talked about he didn't shoot with coverage this film like you know you have the normal shot reverse shot where a lot you know the way conversations usually filmed and or you know action scenes are shot with like a lot of inserts like he didn't he didn't really shoot for coverage he he tried to make you know a, as much as possible these scenes be able to play out you know in in either a one or with just a couple shots here and there like you'll often notice where conversations will play out with you know both people in frame or. You know, there'll be like multiple movements within the you know, the same camera, kind of like, the Spiel, like a shorter, subtler version of the Spielberg Warner. And I just found it kind of interesting. You know, he's I've always really enjoyed the way the way he uses handheld footage in the previous two films, where it, it was it was almost always handheld, but it it still felt very composed and felt very very intentional. Where every camera movement was still telling you something. It wasn't just like oh, shaking the camera because that may, that means we're intense and legit. It, he just he used it to you know just build the uneasiness and just make the world feel real and present, but also still giving us beautiful shots. And I think that that continues here. I, I don't I don't know that this film is quite as visually pleasing to me as the previous two films. I think like the maze is in the glade were just really great looking locations where anywhere you pointed the camera was really cool. I think the scorch was. Not not only just beautiful beautiful as it was, but you also had constantly changing like the mall, the the desert, uh, you know, the abandoned city, the mountains, and so he, there was always just something beautiful to look at in the background. Here, we're in a futuristic city, which he makes look he makes it look really good, but you know, we, we, we've that's not entirely unique to sci-fi. And then you know, almost the entire climax happens in lab, laboratory. So 
I think just the setting isn't as visually uh, aesthetically pleasing. However, I think he still makes it look really good. Um, it's just the I think the I would say the Scorch is probably the best looking film out of the bunch, just because he has you know the, the great outdoors to work with. Yeah, I think that's still the best looking one. But I was really still impressed with a lot of what he did here. Um, I know one of the one of my first takeaways after walking out was just. It's. It felt like we started the movie in Mad Max and we ended the movie in Blade Runner, and it still felt like like a cohesive. But I thought he he still ended up making really good use of of the locations and stuff, and especially once we get to the city, uh, we, we've seen like you said we've seen a lot of sci-fi cities before, but this one to me feels it feels unique enough in that it doesn't feel like it was just shooting for the stars in terms of like, let's be super crazy awesome with all of these futuristic ideas Mm -hmm. when we're actually on the street and we're, we're walking um, just underneath all of these skyscrapers. It feels like a realistic depiction of a future. Um, And, and even whenever we're like in the labs there, there's just something about the way he moves the camera that, that to me felt really cool. It didn't feel as meticulous. Like he was, he was setting up shots the way he would set up in the previous two. This felt much more like he's just holding his camera, trying to keep up with the actors. Like he's behind everybody. He's peeking around the corners. They're peeking around. But, but whenever like there's not action, we're just moving through the halls or, or there's a, there's a shot that I, that really sticks out to me for some reason that I really like where, we are uh, we're on the street with uh, Teresa whenever she first sees Thomas and she's standing right in the middle of a crowd and everybody's wearing their masks and stuff. I feel like you could just kind of you could pause the movie there and that that's like a painting or whatever. Just the the way that shot is composed, I like a lot. And a lot of time, whenever we are just like slowly moving through these these futuristic, sleek looking locales, there's a level of like almost elegance to the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, not there, you know, whenever we get to the action and we are on the move and the it feels like the cameraman's like jittery just like the rest of the actors and stuff. But when we're just moving through these locations, it feels very sleek and intentional. Um, but yeah, I, I always find myself enjoying whatever he's doing with the camera. And I, I feel like there's a lot of variety to, to the way he works with it. Yeah, I, I do appreciate the look of the city. and we, We've seen so many futuristic cities. Like, I like that this is like a very plausible future quote-unquote where due to the you know the extreme budget limitations they actually had to you know shoot this in you know in and around a real city so it's just like digital extensions on buildings and lights it's it's like built off of a real city yet just he's just adding little touches here and there so it feels like a very plausible future there's no flying cars there's no like gigantic you know hologram advertisements it, it, it's it's clearly futuristic but still very recognizable no giant blue ladies yes but i do love that the the, the blue kind of glow he puts over the, like this entire last half of this film has this, this really omnipresent blue glow in the laboratories around the city i think it makes gives it its own very unique visual uh kind of fingerprint yeah i love deep blues in movies like just whenever you soak these these kind of environments in that that pr- always present kind of blue glow it kind of reminds me of, of abrams but maybe a little bit softer um but yeah it really to me it it makes the the last act of this film feel even more unique because it, it does kind of stand distinct among the three 
And coming into the city, we, there's an interesting development where you have the character Galley, played by Will Poulter, coming back. And it, as unrealistic as that plot uh, progression might be, it, it came from the book, so whatever. But I, I do like the way it's handled, where you know the the what what Thomas knows about Galley is that you know the, from the minute he came up in the box, Galley was was highly antagonistic, and then it, that ended with him killing Chuck, you know his friend, the guy he promised to protect, and you know Thomas is all about protection. He's all about you know defending his people, you know keeping them safe. So like this guy has committed the worst uh, crime you possibly can in his eyes. Um, so, you know, his first instinct is to attack him. But then you have all the other characters who are, and, and Galley as well, kind of, he's like, yeah, I, I kind of had that coming. He knows he he knows he messed up. Uh, but then you have the other characters like Newt and Frypan who are like, hey, Galley, like this is, this is the guy we knew for, you know, two years in the maze. Um, and like that, you know, they pretty much almost immediately accept Galley back. But for Thomas, you know, someone who never really knew the guy, He's much more hesitant um, to you know to trust him and to, you know, and to uh, you know bring him into the group, and that just it just feels real and natural. Like you know, it does it doesn't feel like just fake YA melodrama conflict that was forced in there. It feels like this is what that character would do. This is what these characters would do based on who we know them to be and who the the, you know, the previous films have set them up to be. It's just it's good franchise storytelling, I think. Yeah, it's a lot like the the scene where they're planning that we talked about where where the movie's taking the time to take into consideration what these people's relationship are with this guy where their headspace is what their history is and so yeah i remember the uh, the first time i saw it in the theater i was kind of annoyed i was like okay yeah thomas is the guy who's gonna get get mad at him more than anyone Despite the fact that, you know, Chuck was everybody's friend, we need Thomas the one freaking out because he's the lead and we need this drama. But then on second viewing, uh, it, it did make a lot more sense to me where it's like, no, this, from the moment he wakes up, Galley was the antagonist, essentially. He was always the the hesitant one. And like you said, for for Newt and Frypan, like, this is, he's one of the guys. He's one of their gladers that they knew forever. And so their perspective on him is so much more encompassing and so much more accurate of him as a person um, that they're they're not just instantly overcome with with their like you know the last however many months of memory they have of him, uh, and so that makes sense. And I, I like the way that relationship is resolved, where there, there's no one moment where they kind of just look at each other and nod. You know, they give the, kind of the bro nod to each other, and to where they're fine. Now it just kind of happens over the course of the film, to where slowly you see them relying more and more and trusting each other. And Thomas coming, coming to you know trust and rely on him more and more as the entire hour-long action finale happens. It's actually very similar to how they kind of treat Teresa, where it's like the the resol- There's no moment of resolution where they just they, they hug it out. It's just it just kind of happens where the person essentially proves themselves trustworthy through action and then they just they, they they're kind of just they lot like Jorge and Brenda were they're just kind of very organically absorbed into the group till by the end of the film they're just one of the guys again and and you know it's it's a very uh, you know unmelodramatic um you know way way of of you know showing a a character arc and storytelling, you know, in you know YA films, which are usually you know known for being for being so melodramatic. Yeah, and then on the character of Teresa, I feel like we see the same the same kind of uh, response from the characters. Maybe like the reverse version of what happens with Galley, where you know, to Thomas, his experience with the Glade was everything we had seen. 
and he woke up with Teresa coming, you know, right after him, really. He, he was barely at the Glade without her, and so she is just as pivotal and, and central to his time there as anyone else. If not more so, because, you know, she, she was in the exact same position as him, you know. Exactly. So it was, this was, this was his friend who he's figuring things out with. And he also had the flashbacks that where he remembered that they were the one they were the the ones who were experimenting on the kids and you know there's a lot of and then and she, you know she also knows him from memories that he never got back either like there's a lot of outside influences as well you know into building the relationship they have yeah and then you know at the very end of Scorch Trials he he gets to hear her story with her mom he she has the opportunity to explain herself to him and and i think that that goes a long way because the her betrayal is revealed very abruptly to everyone else you know it's just oh crap she betrayed us she's not one of us she's the worst she's now the enemy but for thomas he had to deal with the emotion and and her argument and everything and so it's not quite as black and white to him as it is to everyone else um and then again for for everyone else, they know her just as long as they knew Thomas. But Thomas went above and beyond to, at making himself just integral to this group uh, and pretty much like taking up a leadership position pretty early on. And Teresa was always kind of in the background as far as everyone else was concerned. And so whenever it comes to, you know, using Teresa to get into the city and and all of this, Thomas is much more hesitant than everyone else, and it makes sense for his character. Again, it's not because of the YA, like, well, we need our lead to kind of still have feelings for this person. It's like, no, just that, that makes sense for him as a character, and it makes sense for these people as a character. And it makes sense for, for Newt to kind of have that quick outburst because he's been like that right-hand guy this whole time supporting Thomas. And now, and that's because Thomas has always done whatever it takes to keep the group safe. And now all of a sudden Thomas is is ready to potentially risk the mission because of this this girl. It it feels maybe not out of character, but it just it takes Newt by surprise and it Newt feels like he has to address that. And so just the way everybody's reacting to the situation feels very much grounded um in in what they know about these other people you know for brenda to just be like wait a second i do not understand any hesitation what's going on that's because she came in until she didn't come in until the sequel and she had like no no rapport at all with uh with Teresa. every she just saw the betrayal at the end so again for her it's like yeah why are we even talking about this yeah i love her line am i missing something here this is the same girl who betrayed us right same dick <laughs> Yeah, and and so yeah, it, every everybody's definitely bringing their perspective to it. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of Brenda, I, I really like the way her character is kind of throughout the film. You know, she begins this film believing that she has kind of a that she's going to die. You know, she was infected with the flare. You know, she got the cure. She got what what seemed to be kind of a temporary cure from Thomas, but you know, you see like with Jorge checking her leg, like there's kind of this cloud over her that she knows she's probably going to die soon. Um, but there's also kind of this relationship. I don't even know if it's not even really a, a romance yet with Thomas, where there's this very, you know, this really strong trust they have between each other. And she very, obviously very deeply cares for him. Um, but she's also, you know, hesitant to join in, in this mad quest going into wicked headquarters. And I just like the way she, she's, she just kind of has her own little thing going on 
throughout the entire film. There's like a little shot where um where, where when um Teresa announces over the loudspeakers that Thomas's blood is the cure, and we cut to Brenda's face, and she realizes that she's she's actually not gonna die, like she assumed she was. Um, and just uh, the, the couple conversations they have over the radio, where he tells her to leave and she refuses, like she, uh, Rosa Salazar is just fantastic. You know, she's very much a background character, but she in every scene she's in, she really shines. And, you know, it gets to be snarky and tough, but also have a really strong emotional core that's kind of happening on, underneath everything. Yeah, I think I think Teresa is the most interesting character of the film, but I think Brenda's probably my favorite character in this. Uh, as because, like her her bits in the climax are some of my favorite. Um, I love the level of like just the amount of personality she brings to the character. One of my, one of my favorite moments. Is whenever they're in the bus and she she's like, "Don't go anywhere," and she steps out and then she steps back and she's like, "You're doing great." Like, yeah. just this person who's that. got like this this really tough kind of persona that that in a large to a large extent is true just because of what she's had to live through, but she's all, like, there's also this very like caring side that wants to take care of these people and it's, and so just her love like her constantly like, kind of reassuring all the kids in the bus and stuff and. Uh, and the excitement she has whenever you know the the crane is dropped or whenever Jorge returns, just the way she's like taking all of these new action developments in stride and reacting, it's just her part of the finale is so much fun to watch for me. And I love, I so deeply love that it never becomes like a love triangle where like when Tom, you know, when Thomas is you know choosing to help Teresa or when he goes back in the end, it's never like. We never cut, have to cut to her being jealous or angry. Oh, he's choosing Teresa over me. It's like it doesn't matter. There's a there's a war going on. You know, I, I just love that we just don't we don't even have to go there. I want to talk about Thomas and Teresa kind of towards the end of the discussion, but uh, before we get back to kind of talking about some of the sequences, I want to talk about Newt. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> First off, Tommy Tommy uh, Thomas Brody Sangster is absolutely incredible in this movie um you know he was for the, for the previous two films he was just very you know very likable easygoing presence and but in this film he has a lot of work to do um you know for the and and it's, it's this very clear progression over the films you know he where at the beginning he starts out you know he still has that kind of same easygoing likable list but there's also there's there's a bit of an edge of emotion behind you, know, like when when he goes after Thomas, you know, don't be a twat, we're coming with you, or just like where he he's very emotionally invested in this mission to get Mino, and I think that emotional edge kind of gets becomes is revealed to be oh he knows he's on a ticking clock, he has the flare, so he's you know he he knows this is going to be his last ride and he has to make it count, um but you know. You don't really know that beforehand. And then as we gotta kinda of go along and there's a scene where he just blows up on Thomas because he doesn't want to hurt Teresa. And I love that the way that scene plays out is it's this could very e- for for like the first three quarters of that scene, this could very easily be just be, be just be uh Newt just finally getting tired of um of Thomas's crap and letting him know what he thinks. But then right at the very end where he just lashes at her, don't lie to me, don't lie to me. And he goes, oh, something's wrong. But just the way he plays that scene is so good. And then the, the, then the, his talk he has with Thomas on the roof, which is really, really heartbreaking. And there's actually a, um, 
There's kind of the resignation in his voice, but also there's this kind of slight edge of bitterness that we know is there, but he's trying to hold down where he's like, you know, maybe the only reason they put me in there was so they could tell, tell the difference between, you know, immunes like you and normal people like me, where he's just like so angry at just how cruel Wicked has been to them and the way it's used them and where he, where he, you know, he was put through the maze, not even because it's any, he, he was doing any good, but simply because so that he, this boring normal person could show how cool these immunes are. It's like, He's kind of bitter about his own insignificance, but he never allows that to really manifest itself. It's just this slight undertone that you have to be looking for, looking for to see. Um, it's just a, a great performance. Yeah, it's a cool progression of of this kind of character. I, I think we compared him in previous episodes to uh, to like the the role Edmund occupied in uh, Prince Caspian, and you know, and then they tried to give him a bit of an edge in in the next film, and that didn't really work out that great. But to me, this is this is how you do it. Where a, a lot of the time, this this guy who's meant to just be there and support the lead acknowledges, you know, like, you know, I'm I'm not the real king, or I'm not the real lead, or I'm not whatever. And they they're there to be supportive in in the mission. And for for a film to actually pause, even if it's only for a little bit, but to pause and like let that character maybe be a bit angry about that for for a scene just be like yeah there's there's nothing special about me i've been here for y'all's sake but not as a leader just like as this kind of this extra in what could just be an insignificant variable um and so for the the movie to to kind of let let itself push him for a little bit uh to me gives new like that extra thing that he needed to be truly memorable in the in the trilogy he was he was always one of my favorite characters but i think it it did a good job of of not making it just like well newt was the same guy in in the first one and in the second one and in the third one like he gets to build on on the groundwork that they've laid in a in an interesting way yeah and i like that whatever wicked intended for them whatever reason he was put there in the maze in the the beginning it just doesn't matter you know, the relationships and experiences they built in the maze are real. And no matter what manipulations were going on outside, they're still friends and they're, you know, they're all in this together, even if he was just, you know, this some side science project. And then going over the course of that climax, I just, it's so, it's, it's amazing and horrifying the way he plays just this slow descent where... You know, it starts off. He's he's you know he's kind of coffee a little. He looks kind of exhausted and sweaty, and just at, over the course of that hour long finale, you just see bit by bit him getting slowly worse and worse and worse till by the end where he's just like leaking black fluid out of his mouth and collapsing and you know going in and out of consciousness and and you know and uh you know sanity. It's it's and it, it, there's never a line. There's never a line where oh he's he's good now he's really sick. It's just it's a really coherent slow progression. And it's horrifying to watch. You know, this one of the most likable characters in the series, you know, reduced over an hour to a raging animal. Yeah, and man, just how raw that last fight between them feels is just like... It's just brutal and, and unrelenting, and, and it keeps the camera really close, and so it's always focused on the characters. We, we almost don't even get the relief of... of pulling it back for extended periods of time we're always having to to stare at their faces as they go through this um and and like and the music and just the the way he he directs that scene it's just it's so sad because you almost convince yourself that 
because of this genre, they're not gonna they're not not gonna pull anything like this, you know. Surely with with the cure and everything, we'll get that last moment of like, oh, we got it just in time. We didn't think we were gonna make it, but for us not to make it and then have to deal with with Thomas forced to confront Newt as as he's becoming this crank. To me, it was especially unexpected the first time I saw it, and and I was kind of impressed that they went there. Yeah, and then his final letter, which is just like <laughs> was the the nail in the coffin of my emotions. Uh, it's really really well done. So moving back into some of the action sequences, I really like the entire infiltration of Wicked. It's similar to the uh, to the first uh, the, the train heist. Is we're not we're never told the plan ahead of time. We're just kind of thrust into this action sequence and. Step by step, we see, oh, that was, this element is going there. Like we see, you know, oh, they're using Lawrence to hack into the, you know, the security feed and turn off the security cameras, even although that plays into a different, but also at the same time, Lawrence is manipulating them and he's just using them to, you know, to pull off his grand invasion. But then, you know, we just see piece by piece how it goes and what they're there for. You know, they're, they're going to get the cure, they're rescuing the immunes. And then, you know, Brenda is out there with a bus and now they're going after, um, Minho, and then just step by step throughout the entire thing, it's, it's kept, it's never, never told us what they're doing. And yet we, as every step happens, we always know exactly why they're here, what they're trying to do and where they're going. It's just, a, it's just very, very good action storytelling. Uh, reminds me kind of like uh, Brad Bird's, like the Kremlin uh, infiltration, where it's just, we just open up and we're, we're there, we're in this sequence and we're just allowed to exist in it and we don't have to have any kind of exposition or anything. Yeah, and I mean, to me, I love it when stuff like that happens, especially in these third films where, like, they've already got so much to do to just try to spend too much time in, in setting these things up as opposed to just trusting that your audience can keep up as as, as this goes. It also leads a lot by, by leaving less room for conversations explaining what's happening. You lead more conver- leave more room for conversations that progress the characters, like... A, the conversations between Thomas and Nude and, and Thomas and Galley and then Teresa with the rest of them. It's it's way more character centered because we're we're just letting things play out as opposed to like letting it play out while explaining what's playing out. Yeah, and there's cool touches like giving Galley a darker black suit, um you know, Thomas's is kinda gray and and uh, Newt has red sleeves, so even though they're all wearing masks the entire time, you know who's who. Um I also like that in the middle of this, you know, they're coming to rescue Mino, yet Mino has his own uh, escape plan, you know, going on where he stole uh, Teresa's pin. And he, and, you know, they kind of just meet each other in the middle of the uh, the gun battle. <laughs> he just throws the guy through the window and screams after him. Like, he's just so sick of what he's been through. There's another fun scene, like the ride in the elevator with Jansen, with uh, Thomas and Newt in the background where they're, they're talking. And like, and J- Jansen is also having his own scheme going on where he's scheming against uh, Ava Page. It's, it's just, there's so much stuff going on. It's really fun to watch. There's something you should know. Thomas is here. <laughs> and just kind of like the look that Thomas and Newt give each other in the background. And I love that he he silently, after they walk out, he kind of silently pieces it all together. Like, what are those two guys in there? Who, who could they possibly be? And why was she so suspicious? It's, it's, it's great. He's awesome too. Like, any time that it's just him being a villain, even whenever like the actual plans and everything going on isn't making the most amount of sense, he's... it doesn't have to because he's a crank. <laughs> he's sick. He's going crazy. He can all he's crazy. He gets to be that crazy evil villain, and he has he has an excuse. 
the, the scene where they jump out the window is really well shot. I was about to say, <laughs> that's, that, t- that was the moment, you know, just earlier referring to how cinematic this film felt. That that was one of those rushes that, I mean, was pretty much the entirety of, of watching Fallout in the theater. Uh, but that moment, the way... Cause I, I wasn't expecting the camera to just follow follow them the way it did. And so there was just something about the sense of jumping out of the window with them and following them all the way down, hitting the water. The way that speed was portrayed there, it kind of reminded me of, of like the, the parachute scene from Mission Impossible 3 where like we've got the character in clear plain view and just everything around it is moving at an increased amount of speed and just a blurred side at this point. And it was a really, really cool shot. Yeah, and um, I love he gives like... Uh, Jansen, the middle finger again, which is one of my favorite little bits of uh, Scorch Trials. But just the, the whole running gun battle through the, the lab is really fun and really well shot. Um, I just There's something about the way that he shoots just people shooting that is really fun to watch. I just like, or just the way that uh, Vince was handling his his pistol in the um in the opening train. It's just he makes it look so cool. He he gives it a lot of style without without it ever coming at like the cost of like being a practical like shootout. Uh, and that's always fun to watch mm-hmm. whenever a movie feels like it has its own distinct style of action without without like being silly or, or you know, style coming at the cost of something that makes sense. And for a while, I was, I guess, kind of annoyed at this fight where it kept it kept seeming like the, the bad guys had uh, multiple chances to kill them, but didn't. But then I realized they they themselves are what what the uh, Wicked's after, like the entire the entirety of Wicked exists to capture immune and to, to extract the cure from them. So like they are the most pre- precious commodity on earth. So they kind of give themselves an out to allow the characters to have all these awesome hero moments, but also knowing that that wicked can't actually hurt them because you know, the entire thing is trying to capture them alive. Except Jansen, who's just <laughs> shooting at everything. And I like that we're, we're presented with essentially a world in decline where even the bad guys they all know that this is the end game we are at the end the world the world is, is you know falling apart we, we made these cities you know, we made the mazes this is this was this is our final last effort. there's actually a sense of real desperation <laughs> with the villains you know they're trying to find a cure and they know that they are at the, on their last legs and they're try- going to more extreme measures and like we and there's like little touches here and there to where like Teresa seeing people being, you know, cranks being taken down by the police in the middle of the city. Like you, there's this just sense of gloom and doom hanging over the entire city where it's just the world is going to die. And like, there's really nothing anyone can do about it. Um, and then you kind of, as we move into the climax, we realize that our heroes kind of accidentally triggered, you know, an acceleration of that world ending where you have the character of Lawrence who kind of appears as like a messiah slash humanitarian figure for the crank, someone who's gathering the cranks together and saying, you know, we deserve better. We deserve the cure. And, you know, we're going to take it for ourselves. Um, but in the end, it's actually not about that. It's, for, for, for Lawrence, I think he's just crazy and he wants revenge. I think he just wants to blow up the city that threw him out. I, you kind of get that by the fact that he doesn't even try to get the cure. He just <laughs> runs into a runs into the wall with a flare and blows himself up. Um, but I just love the way he kind he's able to manipulate Thomas, you know, to think that he just wants the cure. So they they kind of let him in, and, and Galley as well is like, 
you know, I, I thought we were going to take down Wicked, not the whole damn city. Uh, and so we have this whole war going on at the end where, you know, the world is literally falling and our heroes who really don't have any stake in this fight, you have the Cranks and then the Wicked who are fighting and our heroes who are just like <laughs> in the middle of this entire war, just trying to stay alive. And I think it's very, it's just, it's just, it's just I think, an, an added layer of complexity to the world building where where it's not all just heroes versus villains. It's like the cranks, they have a legitimate complaint. You know, you know, they, they have been locked out there. The wicked is hoarding the cure. Wicked has a very good mission in theory. You know, they're trying to save the world. You know, a disease is wiping out the entire planet and we got to stop that. You know, they're wicked is the one keeping people safe. Wicked is the one, you know, trying to preserve the human race. And all, then you have Thomas who, Thomas and his gang who are just they're they're trying to save their friends you know p- experimenting on people is wrong and we're not going to let you do that and it's like n- no side there's there's no side that is entirely villainous in this climax and the, I, I feel that, that feels very real and authentic it doesn't feel like there's never any moment where un- unless you know the, it's the cranks where people are just out and out villainized there's you know there's arguments on all sides every side has a point every side is doing very you know, troubling things, you know, Thomas and his team accidentally triggering the apocalypse and also, you know, denying the rest of the world the cure that's inside them. And, you know, wicked, obviously, human experimentation and, you know, wanton slaughter with rockets. It's, it's. I think it's just a much more interesting and layered story. You know, the, we, it never really goes out of its way to have these deep philosophical debates, but there, there's always something happening in the background that's just informing us about this world that I think just makes it more interesting if you, if you care to look. Yeah, about Lawrence and, and everything he brings to it, uh, especially in terms of the climax. I feel like, I've almost, like I'm, I'm kind of split on it. Um, on one hand, I, I love that once we get out of the lab, we're in a fight that we're not a part of. I just love, love the look of that, of like, there's an army on your left and an army on your right. There's explosions surrounding you. Our mission is essentially done. We're we're at the point where we're just trying to get out of here. And we've accidentally created something that we didn't intend and it's just it it's almost made a desperate situation even more desperate. Uh, and so I just I love the visuals of that. And I like all of the ideas with uh with Lawrence and and uh and I love his design and Gog- Goggins is obviously just always amazing. Um, yeah, that, that missing nose is so creepy. <laughs> so off-putting. You know, like, I mean, it, it's like a cool comic book design when it's on Red, School, uh, Red Skull, but when it's just like this fleshy face, it's so gross-looking. Um, but I, I think I would have liked for him to have had... I, I think my, my biggest issue is just a lack of screen time. It feels like he's in, like, two or three scenes total, uh, and outside of, you know, that initial one, it's none of them are super uh, substantial. And so despite everything he represents, he to me, he definitely just feels like he's there to serve a function and not really to present an idea or a, or be a character. Despite the fact that like there is an idea there and there's a character there, those feel sidelined for for the purpose of of accomplishing what they need him to accomplish in the script and and it's not even a super big complaint because i appreciate when films are able to take characters like that and at least give them a unique design and a unique personality and and something on top of just a simple function um 
but to me it was just it, it's this extra layer on the film that that's not nearly as like explored as as these other characters and these other ideas that we're we're seeing and and I think it's also why I find it and the fact that I find like the third act as much as I really like it I think it is a bit too long yeah I I think that this of the three this is by far the less tight of a movie mm-hmm. um, there's there's a bit more bloat there's a bit more um, extraneous stuff that we're giving time to uh, and I think a lot of that is just because it is attempting way more than what the others were trying to you know the first one is just a single location where these people argue back and forth and then escape and and Scorch Trials is a very you know forward moving kind of chase story but here we've you know we've got trying to break in everything going on with Teresa and Ava Page everything going on with Jansen um Lawrence and his you know uprising uh this super lengthy third act is there's a lot going on and it's not nearly as balanced as the first two yeah let's just let's just get into what kind of the that criticism of this film um i i, still, I think this is where the the way that they kind of kick the can down the road in the world building in, the, in a way that I much I very much liked in the previous film kind of comes to haunt them to where you know, you do have a story that is anyway, that they that, that the director and writer aren't all that interested in like a, a plot that they're not all, they aren't all that interested in to where they really they really just want to care about the characters and I think there are moments where you just kind of where you do feel a little lost in the climax where especially towards the end when we, when we get like Jansen in the lab it that, that feels like we're getting more into kind of a YA plot where Jansen kidnaps them and now they're fighting and, and you know stalking him in the lab that feels like we're getting more into the YA territory of just kind of conflict and drama for its own sake and I think I think the big problem with this with this film is the finale I think the finale is simply way too long because there's, you know, the, the 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 climax essentially starts like at the ha- right, roughly the halfway point of the film when they infiltrate Wicked, and then there's like twenty minutes of infiltrating Wicked. Then there's the whole running firefight inside the building with you know Thomas and Newton Minho. Then there's you know Brenda on in the bus. There's the whole bus chase and the crane thing. Then there's you know Lawrence's invasion and the entire battle in the streets. And then, then you have um, Thomas, Newt, and Galleon Mino, you know, working their way through the, the battle in the streets. And they find out, oh, you know, Newt is really sick. And now we have to run. We have to run, run, run to the uh, to the to the the Berg and get the the uh, medicine. And then running there, running back, you have the fight. Newt dies. Then Thomas goes back into the Wicked Building and has a conversation. And then then actually kind of stops. And we have a conversation with Ava Page. Then he's kidnapped. And then we're in the lab. And then they start fighting again. And there's an, another running fight chase through the building. And then there's a scene where they're stalking in the lab in, in a laboratory. And then then after we defeat Jansen, we're up on the building. And you know, the building's collapsing. We're trying to get onto the break. It's like there's so many movements and in, 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 you know in, in this climax that I think really needed to be combined. Like for example, the entire like saga in the wicked building like they've escaped you know they escape out the window they're in the streets brenda has already escaped the city and then after you know that entire section of action is complete then 
Lawrence comes in and we have a street battle and then that section goes and then that's kind of that ends and we have a, a moment of quiet with when Thomas goes back and then we have another escalation it's like there's too much there's just too much back and forth I think they should have had Lawrence invade the city during the main gun battle like running gun battle inside the laboratory and then just combine one or two of the the the, the the sequences of them running back and forth in the in, within the battle, just because I, I like everything that happens except the, the final stuff with Jansen. I like all the action; it's all well done. I think it's it's just it it it, it does a great job. It's very immersive, but it's just it's too much. And I think the real fatal flaw was giving us that moment of rest after Newt dies, because like you know. The action needs to maintain you know, a rhythm and momentum. And once you have you know, a good 40 minutes of action and then quiet, we're done. Like the audience is done. We, we're ready for the movie to end. And then you want to bring us into another action climax. It's just, it's just kind of exhausting. As much as I like most of it, it's, it's simply just it's, it's bloated. It's not really a case of any one thing being like really bad in of itself. It's just just a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it, and it's kind of hard whenever that's a criticism because it's like, like you said, for the most part, all of this stuff is good. It's just not all of it's necessary. And I, I think, you know, sometimes when you have a film that's a series of action scenes, at least a lot of the time there's something happening that has to happen in this scene. I think a lot of the Mission Impossible movies do a good job of, like, justifying why why you can't combine these sequences or or uh, why why this action beat has to happen because we're always advancing the plot there's always something specific to to the action of that scene that that makes it important but to me i think you really can start combining different sequences here and and not lose anything um it does kind of feel like like a bit of padding just to to get a longer runtime which is weird um, maybe, maybe you just want, like, if you're not splitting it into two parts, you're still wanting it to make it feel like this, this epic conclusion, but, but yeah, it, it does feel like we just start moving back and forth, and, and once we end up getting Thomas back in, separated from everyone else, and Paige is shot, and everything with Jansen, it just, like you said, I, I feel exhausted at that point, and I'm like, alright, let's, let's start wrapping the, I, I, it feels like the movie should be ready to wrap, start wrapping itself down, but we've also got our lead unconscious, and we've given our villain a gun, and he's chasing him around. It just, it keeps feeling like it's having to escalate. And as much as I like the vast majority of adaptive choices made, I think there is a big mistake made in the climax. Um, so going back to the books, in the books. Eventually, it comes down to the fact that there simply there is no cure. Jansen is infected, but so he's trying to continue the work of Wicked, simply to you know, to save his own life, and also because he's crazy. And Ava Page realizes that there's no cure. We are never gonna. The world has the cities are falling one by one. You know the world. We 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 can't save the world. So what she does is, she creates the safe haven. And in the end of the story, she is the one who sends Thomas and Co. and all their friends to the safe haven as the world collapses, essentially to continue living the human race as immunes as all the rest of you know non-immune humanity dies. That's the end of the book series. It's 
you know, it's you know, our heroes survive and they're happy together, but it's also incredibly dark and I don't know, I don't think nihilistic is the term, but it's, you know, it's very morbid. Um and and what and what we have here is the you know, in the movie we ultimately find, you know, they they kind of play around with the idea that there's no cure. You know, Teresa tries to heal that little girl, and she, you know, she she she, you know, the disease comes back, and Thomas is like, "There's no cure," but then we eventually realize, "Oh wait, Thomas's blood is the cure," and and at that point, you're like, "Okay, well, but why Thomas?" Like, it it kind of gets into that YA, oh, the one, yeah, uh, kind of story trope. That's what I was thinking too. Like this, even on rewatch, this one still feels like, well, it's because he's the lead. Yeah, and and, and so then we have, oh, there is an actual cure, which you know, which adds a lot of moral dilemmas to you know escaping. Which I, well, I'll get to that later, but but then. On top of that, there the conflict between Jansen and Ava Page is never done. Is never given real, really any real meaning in the film. Like by you know, you kind of present her as a that her uh, a sympathetic character throughout the series, and she has that that moment with Thomas, but then she's killed. And by killing her like that, you you make that character fundamentally irrelevant to the entire series. Like by killing her there instead of having her. And go into open conflict with Jansen. Her character has no reason to exist. Like she, like you look over. If you look back over the other Maze Runner score trials, now everything she did could have been filled by. It could have been a role that was filled by Jansen. You know, having that semi-sympathetic presence now means nothing. It, it has it has no real plot or story meaning across the films. And by killing her in that way, it makes her character irrelevant. And I'd much rather they had stuck to it the way the book where she realizes that there's no cure. And so it's her and Jansen, you know, fighting at the end while Thomas and while she allows Thomas and them to escape. It would have, you know, it would have kind of continued that that kind of thing of where, where you know, the, 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 the powers that be are fighting and the kids are just kind of pawns underneath it all. I just I just I feel like it's far less interesting to have Jansen just shoot her. And now it's just, oh, this one bad guy we got to kill. I really wish they made her. They, they they had her turn around and be on their side by the end. It would it would have justified our character's existence. And I think just kind of added to the real the the, the bizarre hopelessness of the story to where the world is literally gonna die and we just have to live out our lives on an island and hope the human race can survive. It's an incredibly dark finale that I kind of you know applaud for just having the balls to go there. The, the, I think this this you know going into that the, the one trope. It just—it feels like a weaker kind of a cop out of an ending to me. Yeah, her character—you know—not having knowledge of of what the book does with her character, it feels—it does feel weird to me. Uh, just the way the way they handle it, because it feels like the first act of this movie is setting her up to be a major player, and maybe it follows through with that in the third act, but it does kind of feel inconsequential. And once she starts to become less and less concerned with with what wicked's doing and once she's she starts really losing hope and confidence i feel like the the movie is like gearing up to make a statement with her but then it just feels like it sidelines her and she's just there for the rest of it until she gets shot by jansen and i am kind of left wondering you know what was the point with this character and again i think that's just coming without the perspective of what her original intention was, considering that, you know, that ended up being quite different considering the movie took such a different 
approach with the ending. Yeah, it just kind of feels like they introduced her character in the first and second films because she was in the books, and then they realized they didn't want to actually do what the books did with her. Yeah, uh, so back going back to uh, positives, th- th- those are pretty much like the f- my the entirety of my because my problem with this film is I feel like the, the climax is too long, and it gets a little cliche at the end. It's just the whole the whole sequence with Jansen stalking them isn't all that interesting. I do like how the way it makes Thomas and Teresa allies again, but just like the scene where he's stalking them in the laboratory is like it, it could be really cool. And I, I think. You know, Ball is a very good thriller a director of like thrillers and and horror elements, but something about that the scene where he's just kind of walking slowly through the laboratory is so flat. Maybe maybe it's just so small and there's nowhere actually to hide. They're only hiding because Jess's an idiot. It's just there's no tension there for me. Yeah, and that that scene also to me just feels like a lot of movies do that where we go big and then we've got this intimate last confrontation and. And I I am kind of I'm I'm not worried that that anybody's gonna get shot or I don't know, like it's hard it was hard for me to to point out what doesn't really work in that scene for me maybe it's because at that point I'm just so kind of exhausted because of how long the the third act is gone and it almost feels like the the film itself is stalling until we get to the end and we need to give Jansen his last moment but it it just it starts. Well, I guess it already started to lose me um, with with Paige's death and and everything going on after that. But yeah, it it, it gets kind of boring, honestly. Hmm. Um. So now going back, to, going into some positives, I want to talk about Teresa. I think she's a fascinating character. You know, we talked about her a lot in the previous episode, where she is a a character, a, a very pragmatic character. You know. She loves her friends. She cares about them. She doesn't want to see them get hurt, but she also realizes that the world is dying and this is the only way to save the world. So she's, she is willing to sacrifice human lives, you know, to, for the greater good, to save the world, you know, sacrifice the few for the many. And I love that she never becomes callous in that. Like she fully knows that she has sold her soul. You know, you have, you have that conversation with uh, Ava Page where Ava, tells her that she can remove her memories like you, you she could take away her memories of friendship with her friends to allow her, you know, her to continue her work without this distraction she's like no because you know where she she kind of essentially wants to keep the memories and allow them to torture because she know, she knows what she's done is wrong but but she's like we, we we have to keep fighting we have to find a cure because otherwise you know we've done all these horrible things for nothing you know, the, the only way we can justify all the atrocities we committed is is if we find a cure and i i love that she she is just fully aware of everything she's doing and she feels the pain of every of you know torturing minho or and then in that confrontation with thomas i love that thomas he he refuses to use her um, you know, for just you know, to, to to kidnap her and use her for information because in his mind she's still one of the group, but he agrees to do it on the condition that he can make sure that she is okay with what she did. Like he he actually gets her to you know to say, yeah, I I, I would I would do what I did again. He's like, okay, <laughs> now you can kidnap her and take her and you know, and, you know interrogate her. Um, it's just you know another great character moment that you know that that fits in with who he is. Um, but I like that you know throughout the entire climax. She isn't against them. You know, she's kind of helping them. She probably would not have chosen to help them, but she doesn't want them to get hurt. So she's tr- trying to keep them out of harm's way. And the, the, the scene where, the, where Jansen confronts them, he, where he figures out they're in disguise, I like that she's able to kind of 
keep them safe. She, like she pushes the him into the um into the room and closes the door so that Jansen can't kill him while at the same time capturing Thomas so she can get his blood. It's like she's playing all these all these different goals that she has throughout the climax. And then finally at the end, everything you know, everything's collapsing. The world she's tried to save has, you know, is 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 you know completely going to hell. And she turns from this total pragmatist um who is willing to do everything for the greater good to her. You know, all that is gone now. So she comes and she's just trying to help her friend live. The entire climax is her trying to make sure Thomas gets out alive because he is her friend. And, you know, no matter what she did to him previously, it, you know, all that doesn't mean, doesn't means nothing anymore. She is here to help her friend survive. And I love the way that the, the scene on the, cli- the, the, the climax of the tower works out. It's, it's like the culmination of every emotional arc that's happened where you have, Teresa has come around and is no longer is trying to help them live. Um, Brenda and Hora have chosen to stay with their friends and fight for them. Galley has become has been fully reintegrated at that point. You know where he's hanging out of the of the um of the Berg trying to save them. You know they they failed to save they failed to save Newt, but every one of them is here to try and save their friends to try and save Thomas. It's like. Every journey that we've been through, all every character arc that we've had is kind of coming to this culmination where it's all about just saving our friends. And and I love that Teresa chooses to die. Like she knows what she's done. She knows how evil it's been, how much she's how much pain she has caused. And she can't even though she's gonna try every with everything she has to save Thomas, she can't bring herself to save herself because she knows she deserves to die. And you know, maybe if they had more time, they would have been able to convince her to come. But that you know, that split second of hesitation, where all her guilt kind of comes crashing down on her, like the building that falls on the bill falls on the roof. It's kind of it's that moment of hesitation where all the guilt catches up with her, and she chooses to just to die, just to end it there, having saved the per- you know having saved the person she loves. And I don't know. It's just it, I, this. I find something just so emotionally devastating about that entire sequence with the, the music and the flames in the background and everyone, you know, you know, you know, Galley and, and uh, Vince reaching out for their friend and Brandon, it's just all these emotions kind of coming together. To, I think a, a pretty perfect emotional finale for every character there. Yeah. I, I really like what they do with Teresa. I, I said, you know, she's to me, she's the most interesting character. She's the person who feels the most nuanced in the way she looks at the situation. And, and I love that despite her helping um, helping Thomas and them in the end, and it never feels like she fully goes back on, on her work and what she was doing. And it, I like that despite this kind of redemption given to her, she still dies in the rubble of, you know, this, this work that she decided to choose. Um, it, it's, it's not this black or white, like either you're redeemed or you die and you're a villain. It's this. It gives her grace, you know, to give that to have that last moment, that last, you know, eye contact with the rest of the group. You know, they're they're not going to remember her with nothing but bitterness and contempt. And I, I like in that moment, even the ones who are most against her are still reaching out for her. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so the movie does extend that to her, that kind of goodwill, um, but it's not this kind of like get out of jail free thing. She still ends up being 
you know, aside from also Newt, but she ends up being the one who doesn't make it. Um, and that that's the consequence of, of the decision that she made. And so I don't know, I, I like that a lot about it. And I, I like that, you know, I think she became way more interesting by the end of the Scorch Trials and especially more so throughout here. And I'm glad that they just didn't revert back to a, like a black or white kind of depiction of the character. And that kind of brings us to Thomas. Uh, you know, I love that he still you know, his MO is he's trying to save his friends. That's all he's here for. And bringing him that to that crushing moment of failure. They, they got Minho out, but now Newt has died. And you know, he tries his best to, with everything that was in him to save Newt, you know, sending them ahead, just literally dragging him through the streets as the world crumbles until uh, he, where he actually has to kill him himself. It's like the ultimate failure. And it's in that moment of failure that Teresa kind of calls out to him. And I think you know, his choice to leave his friends and go back into into Wicked makes perfect sense, you know, considering just the the ultimate failure he just now experienced. You know, he's brought to his lowest of lows. You know, he couldn't save his friends, so he might as well sacrifice himself to save the world. And I, I think Dylan O'Brien just plays that really well, just you know, the, kind of the, the desperation and to save Beat Hope throughout the first half of the film, and then just kind of the, the total heartbreak and misery of what happens to Newt to kind of the, the quiet resolve at the end. I think it's a very good performance. Again, you know, incredible, amazing physical uh, actor as well. Just there's so many crazy stunts he does. And I think his fight scenes with, with Newt and with Jansen are really cool looking. Um, and I, I, I've heard this film be, uh, get criticisms for kind of having like too many finales. Like oh, say it has to go like the return of the King syndrome. And I don't entirely, I entirely disagree with that. I think I, but I, I would say probably the, the, t- the time poorly spent is actually within the climax. And sure, there are like three ki- sort of endings, but I, I, for me, I, you know, I've spent all this time with these characters. I want that resolution. I want the characters, you know, to have a little bit of time to reckon with what, you know, with the journey they've been through and, and you'll know, come to a place of peace and, I don't know, being someone who loves the 17 endings of Return of the King, I'm fine with, you know, three short endings here. Um, so, you know, at the safe haven, I, uh, the film kind of really comes really comes down hard on what this story was about. It's about friendship with that, um, with the kind of the rock where they carve the names of the dead in, which is, a, I think, a really powerful callback to the first film where, you know, where Vince has that really awesome speech where he says, you know, this place is for you, for all of us. But then, but this, he pointed at the rock, this is for them. So in your own time, in your own way, come make your peace. And it's, it's just really just telling us that this film has been about these people. It's been about, you know, their journey together. It's about, you know, the memorializing the ones we lost. And it's just really beautiful. I love that it's galley that carves Chuck's name into the rock. We see it kind of in the background. Um, and you know, for Thomas, it, you know, he, Thomas is kind of you know making his peace with whatever the hell he had with Teresa, you know, by carving her name in the rock. It's like, sure, she was an antagonist, but she still meant something. Something she meant something to him, you know. What if whatever that was, it, it, he still wants to honor whatever kind of relationship they had. It's, I don't know. There's for me, there's something just so potent about giving us that those couple scenes in the end to really reflect on the journey we've been on, you know, re- reflect on the dead, celebrate with the living. I, don't know, I, I find it just very emotionally satisfying. You know, combining that, that really poignant climax on the rooftop to this very quiet kind of retrospection at the end. Like the, the accusations of, of returning the King syndrome 
to me felt really weird. I I don't feel like we cycled through a bunch of endings. I never felt the gotcha moment. I guess that that you definitely get with Return of the King and other films. To me, this very much felt like the clear finale that that we needed to come to. Uh, I I really just love the way it's shot. Like I love waking up with Thomas and we just hear the waves of the ocean, and everything is just compl- like with this kind of white glow and looking around and. And everyone's already here. It's almost dreamlike. It's like the surreal waking up. And then, it, it, I mean, it, I guess to make the comparison to Lord of the Rings, it's kind of like Frodo waking up in Rivendell, where the idea of the conflict being over almost feels so surreal that that that's just the way things look. And and then I like that we move into the conversation and him getting the or him finally reading the letter and the focus on the rock and and watching him walk off on the sand with a boat it just it feels it feels like the movie despite it being a YA despite you know there not being a whole lot of love for especially the the second film it feels earned um and like it it's treating the series seriously by giving it this emotional send off and these last moments of introspection and and considering the characters and the cost of everything, it it just feels like a surprisingly like sweet but um, sincere uh, final scene for for the series and for the characters. It reminds me of the the, the ending of Murder on the Orient Express, where the, the, this film has really tortured us and put us through this really devastating emotional ringer. And then, but it, it doesn't leave us there. It gives us the, it gives us hope. It gives us time to kind of just sort out our feelings, to sort out our thoughts on the characters before the film ends. And just, I don't, know, I, I just like endings like that where they just allow us to kind of just to heal. Yeah. After watching Newt go, go through all that. And also, did you notice that, uh, like on, on the, the yeah, there's a West West for a West Ball is, is carved onto the rock, but also a Jula for a Jula Pados, the DP. And I'm sure there's probably a couple more crew members on there, but those are the ones I noticed. I didn't see that. And then finally at the end, the, the biggest change is where Thomas chooses, or at least we, it looks like he's choosing to take the ship and go save the world, which kind of <laughs> you kind of wonder like, well, why, why did they start out with that? But I, I still prefer. The book's ending where they're just they're just gonna live here and let the world die. But if you're gonna introduce the cure, that would have been a really massive moral dilemma if they chose. Oh, there we know there's a cure, but we're still gonna just gonna live in the safe haven and let the world die. I like that they still chose to you know let Thomas be true to his character, and at least at the very least strongly consider going going to save the world at the end. I think it would have kind of been a you know he's the guy who wants to save everybody, so it makes sense that he's gonna try and do whatever he can with the cure that he now has. All right, so uh, let's uh, move into our discussion of the the score. So th- this score is kind of interesting. Like the first half is really really sad. It's like a lot of sad introspective music, very quiet and underplayed. But then like the second half is like all like heavy action and thriller. I think I I think I prefer the uh, the previous two scores a bit more. I think they had a bit more variety. I think the first one is still my favorite, but I think that there's quite a bit of good stuff here. Um did you listen to any? Uh, I listened to a handful of, of the first half. So just running through some of the highlights. Uh, the first one is Rescue. This plays over the, the, the train high sequence. Uh, it's just really exciting. It has like this really intense cello and this really propulsive rhythm. And then the, where the main theme comes to this really heavy brass. Uh, it sounds a bit like Pirates of the Caribbean with a bit of like the, the mixes of the Maze Runner theme going in there. Uh, and there's kind of like a bit of 
uh, touches a Mission Impossible as well, but it's just a really fun propulsive sequence, and I, and I, I love the action theme that he has for this. Uh, then it kind of ends with that really triumphant uh, Maze Runner theme. Yeah, I, I actually really like this score a lot, or this track a lot. Um, it felt really exciting and fast-paced uh, while still sound, like maintaining the sound of the series and stuff. And and part of what I love about this is what I love about that scene is that uh, it ends so triumphantly and we cut to the opening title. And, and I appreciate that more on rewatches considering, you know, they got the wrong train car, which which I, I like that the movie opens fooling us into thinking like we, we started with a, you know, a Han Solo rescue victory kind of thing. Then there's uh, The Last City and Teresa's Plea. Like some of these tracks kind of play into each other. Um, the Last City is like this really has this, this sense of like mournful grandeur or like kind of this forgotten beauty of, you know, this, this final city that's, it, it's kind of like just mourning the decay of civilization. It's, it's very quiet and somber. Um, then there's, uh, Teresa's plea kind of builds out of that. It's really mournful, has this really kind of haunting piano. It, it feels for me, I get the feeling of like memory and like a, 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 a contained and controlled sorrow, not like not like open sadness, but like this a sadness that has been you know mastered. It's it's, it's like a, it's a very somber piece of music, but also it, it kind of has a touch of hope because you know it's, it's Teresa. Essentially, the Teresa's worldview, where she, you know, she she's in a very serious place, but she also she also has hope for the future. And then we have uh, two tracks, closing in and an old friend. Uh, closing in is kind of this really eerie march. Um, there's there's a kind of a wildness to it, you know, with with all the cranks and it's sort of unnerving. It's just building and building in intensity. Then we, it moves into an old friend, which has kind of more of that eeriness, but also a mix of sadness. And then we get like some really crazy, uh, you know, exciting, chaotic action beats as the rockets start firing um, on the crowd. Uh, then we have a long way from the glade. This is kind of a really delicate traveling rhythm. Um, I think it's, I think it plays as they're sneaking into the city uh, is, is like a bit of sadness to it. Then it moves into something a bit more kind of robust and militant as it builds. Um, then there's chat with Teresa. This one again is very, very sad, but also is kind of sweet. Um, there's a bit, a bit uh, of the maze runner theme mixed in. And there's also, it, it, it has touches of that sense of like sad memory that we, that we heard in Teresa's plea. Um, I, I really love this kind of, there's, there's a series of, of songs throughout all the soundtracks is you know, this chat with Chuck and chat with Brenda and now chat with Teresa. And I think they're all really, really sweet. Uh, kind of like they're all about kind of memory and hope and sadness. And, you know, the journey we've been on they really endear us to the characters. I think then there's the lion's den. This is one of those 10 minute tracks. It's like, it, it's almost entirely like infiltration music. Like it's just, it, it, it feels a bit like mission impossible. It's that kind of, that steady driving rhythm that's slowly building and building into intensity that occasionally break you out into action. Uh, then there's Please Tommy, which is another 10-minute track. This one has a really sad and downbeat version of the Maze Runner theme. There's like a lot of urgency and tragedy um, coming up underneath it. And then and then after Newt dies, it ha- we have that those really sad uh, chat with Chuck Piano and uh, vocals, which are kind of the, 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 the film's theme for sorrow and loss. Is that, that really sad piano and vocals? And then, as he chooses to go to Wicked, the Maze Runner theme kind of, which kind of slowly comes back in, kind of highlighting my theory in the previous film that the Maze Runner theme is now Wicked's theme. Then there's I'm Sorry, which is 
by far my favorite track in the in the film possibly my favorite track in the series um it opens with the kind of the contemplative flashback music that we heard at the beginning of scorch trials and there's like tiny hints of the maze runner theme with marvel vocals and then it just bursts into this huge emotional maze runner theme with like this massive vocals and percussion it's it's incredible it's it's I'm just going to go into like a total hyperbole here, but it's just this huge and bombastic and it's sad and hope and catharsis. It's, it's, it's the climax of the film and you know, it's the emotional climax of everything with uh, Teresa and Thomas and everyone else, the, you know, the buildings falling apart, but it's this just gigantic music that beautifully underlines, you know, all the various emotions of triumph, of sadness, of, of hope, of memory that is all just kind of churning around and, and then, then after Teresa falls, it kind of it goes back. It goes back into the kind of the Teresa's plea music. Kind of, it's highlighting her choice. I don't know, it's it's really emotionally cathartic. Like every time I listen to it, I just kind of want to weep. It's so it's really powerful. Um, and then finally, there's goodbye. This one is like is like kind of somber, but it's also optimistic and really soothing. It's weird because like it's so weird to have this just really quiet, soothing, nice music after this entire really intense journey of a score. Um, I feel like it's kind of, like I said, it feels like this track is here to kind of heal us after the journey we've been on. Um, just some really nice flute and piano as we move into kind of the ending of Thomas's choice. So some really good stuff. Not, not, I, I think I prefer the previous two soundtracks, but I'm, I, but I'm sorry as a track in particular is, is one of like all time favorite uh, film score pieces. So finally, let's move into our um, our star rating and our ranking of the trilogy. Uh, James, what do you give this out of five stars, and how do you rank the series? Uh, so I give it a, a three and a half out of five. I think it does really well with its characters. I think it wraps things up in a pretty satisfying way, uh, at least as far as our main characters go. I think it hits a lot of good emotional notes, and, and the action is always really, really good. Uh, as for the ranking, I think I go Scorch Trials number one, Maze Runner number two, and um, Death Cure number three. But there's not a huge amount of distance between each of them. Uh, I just think, kind of like what we were talking about with the finale here, there's there's just a bit more bloat and a bit more unnecessary stuff going on in this one than the first two, which were very lean movies. Uh, but even still, I I enjoy it. Uh, about as much as the first two in a lot of ways and it's especially just as a marathon going from one two to three it's a it's a really fun sitting yeah i also give it three and a half stars out of five and i pretty much echo everything you said just for the same reasons it's a very fun film but it also has a, i think a, a, a rather shocking emotional gut punch at the end that i you never really get with these ya series um it's just looking at the over the, the, the saga as a whole i just it's you know it's, it's at every step of the way it's way better than it had any right to be. I think West Ball showed himself to be an incredible talent that I'm I cannot wait to see what he does next. Or I really hope this Mouse Guard movie goes through. Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's you know it's not they aren't the greatest movies ever made, but they're they're just really well made. I I I just respect them to no end. Um, and my ranking is the Maze Runner, the Scorch Trials, Death Cure. Although. Uh, Scorch Trials and Death Cure are, are pretty close to each other. I just, I think, just think the de- the the the, um, the Scorch Trials is a slightly it's a, it's a funner watch. It's an easier watch. This movie takes a lot more out of you to watch, and it's a bit longer too, and it has a bit more downtime. So on its initial release, after the one year delay, it only made fifty eight million domestically. 
Uh, however, it had a very strong showing in the foreign markets, making a 230, which is about on the level of what uh, the Scorch Trials made. Uh, that makes for a worldwide total of 288 million on a pretty thrifty $62 million budget. Um, um, and I'm assuming that uh, the insur- insurance covered the you know the the year long production delay, which had to have cost you know in the tens of millions. As far as the critical reception, like the Scorch Trials, it got fairly mixed reviews. Uh, it holds a 47% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 50 on Metacritic, but uh, has a slightly uh, higher audience score than Scorch Trials on both sites. The critical reception seems to be pretty much the same as the Scorch Trials. Uh, they seem to, to you know, respect the filmmaking and acting, but kind of have the same dismissive attitude towards it being YA. Yeah, at this point, when this film came out, the YA craze was pretty much over. You know, we had... Yeah, I think Dangerous Minds came out and bombed really bad. Like, <laughs> completely forgot about that. Yeah, it had been a couple. It had been a couple years before we had since we had a really big YA hit. Um, you know, Allegiant had bombed really, really, really badly in 2016. I think Allegiant was probably the death knell of the you know of YA adaptations as big event blockbusters. A general audience, like I, I don't even know really all that much what the general audience thought of this film because like you know not a lot of people in America went and saw it. It was. You know, it, it, the one-year delay really kind of hurt this film, this, this series' momentum, and by the time it came over, people were like, "Oh, that that was a movie. Oh yeah, right." Um, however, I think the the fans, like the the the, the reception, of the fan community, has been pretty positive, um, from what I can tell. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not very deep. In, I'm not really involved at all in the fandom, but it's just a little bit I see here and there. People people who who liked the first three first two films like this film as well. So as far as the legacy goes, it's. Man, covering this after like the last two Narnia films is starting to get depressing <laughs> because it almost feels like there's there's really not much of a legacy left behind uh, and I think it's kind of hard differentiating the legacy of, of this from the Scorch Trials um, although I think this one has even less of one outside of you know it being remembered for, for you know what happened with Dylan O'Brien like I'm, I'm sure it has a huge legacy among like the Dylan O'Brien fans and, and, and stuff like that. But yeah, people who take interest in film production in general. Yeah. You know, th- that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but uh, just as far as, as like audience goes, it, it seems like a lot of people, even people who went out and saw the Scorch Trials because of that just lengthy gap in time uh, where we just didn't hear hardly anything about it. Um, I know people who saw the first two and didn't see the third one and someone who was like oh so it did get made <laughs> we're like they weren't even aware of its finished production and stuff and so they didn't put all that much into marketing yeah like even despite me like enjoying that first trailer it feels like if i remember correctly the trailers were coming not super long before the movie was released and uh it didn't seem like they went above and beyond to drum up hype which you'd expect they would considering how how obvious it was that people were needing to be reminded that this existed but but yeah the legacy is kind of that it it came and went and um i mean even the first i think the first one is still the most well remembered and and well uh well liked by by just audiences and even that isn't like this staple or anything of of that era of, of film so yeah i don't know outside of outside of the it's explicit fans if it's going to be remembered well uh, in sev- you know several years from now. Yeah, I have a feeling the series probably built up a bit more goodwill outside the U.S. And, you know, as shown by that's where it made most of its money, and the, the, the series has always had a pretty good showing out in you know in the foreign markets. Um, 
weirdly like in a lot of the fan groups like a lot of the members i've seen you know a little bit i've you know a little bit of interaction i've had are are you're not american so that's interesting i want i wonder i'm curious as to why exactly that happened and looking forward to the future if west ball goes on to have the career he does <laughs> we both believe he deserves um i think this could be there could be kind of an interesting resurgence in 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 you know, love and respect for this series. You know, it's it is kind of a, an odd start for a director to come out of nowhere and you know and to make a fairly you know, a a pretty big blockbuster trilogy that everyone's at least heard of, even if they haven't seen it. I'm I'm very curious just just to see how this goes forward. You know, he's he's still working in Hollywood. He has the Mouse Guard movie coming up, and and I, I wonder. I I have a feeling kind of the future will be kind to these movies. I feel like the kind of movies that people will just like will discover here and there like hey that was a pretty good movie i hope so and yeah i think a lot of that will depend on on his legacy you know because if he ends up gaining a lot of fame then the story like oh did you know ball started out with like this ya trilogy like that's a story and that's something you want to go seek so like no one would ever watch duel if spielberg hadn't become spielberg exactly so and it's, and it's still a really good movie though go watch duel <laughs> All right, so that was the Death Gear, and that was the Maze Runner trilogy. Um, I hope you guys guys enjoyed those, and if you did, again, I'd like to ask you guys to please head over to iTunes, uh, subscribe, and uh, leave us a rating and review. We would really appreciate that. And if you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there as at Franchise Pod, and we are also on Instagram as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me uh, on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I and then the the main place for interaction is uh, is our Facebook group we are The Outer Rim a Star Wars fan group um, right in the middle of a big Star Wars marathon with a bunch of people with all the people at our group over there with plenty of discussion so if you enjoy the series as a whole and you want to have fun talking about it definitely feel free to join and I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green uh, you can follow me on Twitter as at Gabe A. Green. All right, and for next week, we're going to start a new series with Blade Runner. Starting series like this is always just intimidating. There's there's so much history and legacy that, like, I'm almost afraid to even try. Like, you know, there's no way you could do justice to, you know, to what films like this have become. But if we, I guess, if we did Star Wars, we could handle Blade Runner, right? Yeah, maybe we'll see. Yeah, maybe. I'm looking forward to having something some real production to to talk about because there's a lot of meaty stuff that that wouldn't behind the scenes here oh yeah definitely so until next week we will see you in the classic the future's in your hands now tommy and i know you'll find a way to do what's right you always have